Today is Monday, September 14th, and this is Sam Walking in the World, episode 22. <clears throat> now, it has been a while since I have heard you listening to the sound of my voice. And I decided that I kind of like it. Um, I uh, was teaching this week, so I had plenty of other things to do that kept me busy. And I kind of like the way that uh, thoughts were piling up in my head over the course of the week. And um, I had a little bit better chance to sort them out. And I think it's going to make a difference. Um, I think I'm going to start to do this show weekly. It will probably air on Sunday or Monday, um, as this one is. And so um, I thought so much about what I want to talk about in larger things today that um, I only have a couple of quick things before I get to it. And that thing I'm going to talk about in larger things is this rise of systemic theory. Like systemic racism, systemic sexism, uh, systemic approach to analyzing um, things, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, so first, let me get to the, the other things quick. I have a, a stupid thing. First, um, the other day, I don't know what day or the week it was, but I was beat, and I was just kind of laying down watching some old movies that I had. And one of them was uh, Dirty Harry. Now, everyone knows who Dirty Harry is. Um, almost everybody knows. And they know that Clint Eastwood plays Dirty Harry, who's a, a homicide detective in San Francisco. And it, you, whenever you watch an old movie, I think I've mentioned before, you kind of have to, you know, take into consideration the fact that everything is a little different about the way they made movies. The cinematography is different. Um, the way they introduce and characterize characters is different. There's, there's a little bit more obvious who's who. Um, the language isn't quite as subtle as it is now. Uh, they don't sound quite as much the way like the way people actually talk to each other as they do now. But none of that is the, what I noticed that had me laughing really hard as I watched the movie. It was, it was primarily just the changes that have occurred since then in time, in the world. Now, I was born in 1971, and I didn't realize that Dirty Harry came out in 1971. Um, I thought it was later, I guess. I, I, the 70s to me, since I was very, very young, were more or less a blur. <clears throat> I knew that certain music came from the 70s, and certain you know clothes and hairstyles came from the 70s, and all the bands that were in the 70s. But uh, I never really got a, a sense of the time and uh, what, what made it so different than modern day and, and even recent days. But first I want to ask this. How, how did Clint Eastwood do it? Watching him in this movie, he already looks like he's about 50 or 55. And it was 48 years ago. Which I guess stands to reason when you think about how old Clint Eastwood is. But my God, that guy must be eating right. So, I watched Dirty Harry, and uh, the killer in the movie is, is called the Scorpio Killer. And he's a guy who is a, like a sniper, like kind of like the DC sniper. He would go up on buildings 
and he would uh, he would advertise in the San Francisco Chronicle who he was planning on killing. Pretty sure that's how he told him, or maybe it was just some kind of note or whatever. But he would say what kind of you know um, class of people he was planning on killing in. You know, whether it was a, a white guy, a priest, an African American. They called them Negroes in this movie. Had me rolling, um, but it was it was with respect. I guess at the time I didn't know that that was what that African Americans were acceptable to be called and were okay with being called. At least it appears that way. It's presented that way in the movie. So, it, it the Scorpio killer threatens the mayor that if a ransom isn't paid, he's going to kill the next victim. And the, the ransom that he's asking for is $100,000. And he, as the mayor reads the note, and, and he reads $100,000, everyone's jaw drops. And he says, where, where does this guy think I'm going to come up with $100,000? I mean, think about the budget of the city of San Francisco now. It's got to be like a billion dollars. So anyway, uh, the detective, the, the young, just-out-of-college detective that works with um, Clint Eastwood's character, Dirty Harry, is uh, is named uh, Rennie Santoni. Um, and he's supposed to be, throughout the movie, he's referred to as this young pup who's just learning the ropes. And his, his college education isn't going to bring him very far in this business. Only hard experience does. Um, but for those who don't know, Rennie Santoni is the guy who plays Poppy from Seinfeld. Who owns the restaurant. He pees on Jerry's brand new couch. Um, and he is, uh, he looks old in this movie. I mean, he's doing, seems like he's doing great now. He's probably very old, but, um, even in this movie to, to suggest that this guy just got out of college. I mean, God, he looks like he's like 31, but, and that got me thinking like <clears throat> people were older at a younger age, even 48 years ago, at least it appears that way. It may be an illusion though, because I'm only seeing it from my perspective. I might be in a box here. Those of you who've heard me describe the box know what I'm talking about. Um, it, it could be an illusion. Um, maybe because, I don't know, maybe it's because we're already used to seeing the person in their older face. So when we see the young face, we kind of automatically morph it into the old face we know they are now. But, like, I remember even looking at my father's junior high school basketball pictures. I swear. I'm sorry, Dad. He looks like he's 40. He's in, like, seventh grade. They all do. Everyone in the picture looks like they're, like, 36, 37 years old. They have very serious looks on their face. And they all have the same hair. I guess they stuck with that hair because that's kind of the way they still wear their hair, most of the people I know from that era. But, anyway... Uh, Dirty Harry in one scene is sitting at this diner eating a hot dog. And uh, and he thinks he sees what is a bank robbery down the street. And and he's kind of watching and watching. And then he realizes, yes, this is a bank robbery going on. And he writes down on a piece of paper something and hands it to the, the owner of the diner. He says, call this number right away. And the the guy dials the number on a rotary phone on the wall and hands hands dirty harry the, the giant enormous earpiece and the long the long pigtail cord and 
and it's the police, and it's a number. It's not 911, and it's not even a common number people know. It's like the specific number to the police department. And it takes, like, from the time Harry hands him a piece of paper to the time that the phone call is answered, it's got to be at least a minute. And then it's probably another minute by the time it's answered. It's just ringing and ringing and ringing. And finally he tells him that, that there's a, whatever, 212 or whatever a bank robbery is in progress. And, and it takes even longer then for the cops to arrive. And I was like, God, man, people must have got away with a lot of crime just because it took so long to call the police. Imagine getting the wrong number. Oh, you got to hang up and you got to dial all seven numbers again, waiting for the rotary to roll back each time you dial a number. I remember trying to push it with my finger. You know, when I was very young, there were rotary phones. And uh, God, if, if people in this day and age had to use a rotary phone, they'd probably all shoot themselves. I mean, to think of how much instant gratification people are used to getting with cell phones now. You can call from anywhere to anywhere. You can touch one button. You can see the person's face. Back then it was... Anyway, well, what got me to was that the murderer, the, the killer, he would be like kind of jumping from rooftop to rooftop. And when he got to the place where he's planning on doing the shooting... He had to open up a suitcase that he had been carrying and take out the parts of the gun and screw them together. He had to hold two parts together and then pull a screwdriver out of the suitcase and screw the whatever the connecting part that made it so that the parts of the rifle were all together. It must have taken him 15 minutes to do. And then he shot somebody. I'm not sure if he hit someone on that shot, but I was like, man, man. And uh, another thing I noticed, too, is the car chases. Car chases must have seemed extremely cool then. I guess that's why people always said cut to the chase. It was it, it immediately made the movie very exciting because people were driving fast in cars. And I guess cars I guess hadn't been around fast cars, hadn't been around long enough for it to not seem, you know, ordinary. And so... Um, I've, it made me think about car chases in movies now, and I, I hate them now. Like you always know it's going to happen. They're going to drive extremely dangerously fast. They're going to almost get hit by the oncoming car right before they swerve out of the way at the last second. And then one car is going to cut in front of the other car, and the other car is either going to hit it or drive through it. And none of the main characters ever really die in the car chase, and almost always the the cop doesn't catch the perpetrator. Some Somehow he gets away. Like nine out of ten times, that's what happens. And it, it and with the graphics now, it's like, it's just incredible. The way they can make cars roll and, and they can slow it down to that slow, almost static slow motion where you can see something flying through the air at like two-tenths of a mile an hour. And um, for me, for my taste, it, I feel like it just takes up too much of the movie. I already know what's going to happen. I'm not excited about how dangerous it is because you know watching it that no one could ever do that. And so at least the car chases in this movie were more like real car chases. It would be like if if somebody stole my car from my driveway and I had to jump in my other car and chase them. It would be like about 45 miles an hour, maybe 50, braking to go around turns, probably stopping at lights if you could. But 
anyway, times have changed. I thought it might be a neat thing to uh, to start with 1971, just to, to be able to watch um, the times change in cinematic form by um, starting with the movie in 1971, or for you, for whatever year you were born, and then watching one movie from each year of your life. Just pick a popular movie from 71 for me. And then I'll find a popular movie that came out in 1972, and I'll watch that in 73, and so on. Just to see where it was that things, you know, kind of jumped ahead technically and what acting, how acting kind of evolved, what the topics were that were in the movies. I think it'd be an interesting study. Or I think it might just be fun. So that, as I said, was stupid. And uh, with that, before I get to the other two things, I'm going to get a quick break. And then um, after that, I'll get to larger things. And those are things systemic. So I'll be back right after this. And welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 22. That message was brought to you by my boy Milky, as you know. Okay, um, in lifey things, I wanted to talk about something that I just did. Okay, um, I'm not sure when this episode is going to publish, but right now it's about 6.30 in the morning. And uh, I took the dog outside, and we kind of sat on the front porch, and I was just drinking a coffee. And the dog was just kind of sitting there with me, and I'm looking out kind of at the world. The house across the street, looking at all of the green grass that's near my house. I'm fortunate enough to have that. And um, the woods and the tall trees, all the leaves. And I was thinking to myself, I live in a place where in about four months' time, what I'm looking at will be 180 degrees opposite. There will be no leaves on the trees. Everything will be covered in white, thick snow. Um, it'll be very cold. I was just thinking to myself, I'm sitting outside. This is something I recommend to anybody who lives in a climate where winter is winter. And I, mean, I enjoy winter. There's parts of winter I like. Uh, I like hockey season. Um, I, I, there's something beautiful about winter, and it does make us appreciate our summers and, and falls and springs, except we don't really have that much of a spring here. It's kind of a snap your fingers and it's summer. But this time of year, September, the temperature is just cool enough, but just warm enough. And I was sitting outside in a t-shirt in my pajama bottoms. And I was thinking to myself, I could allow this moment to count as nothing. This could just be nothing. Me sitting here doing nothing. But in context, I tried to get myself to imagine in context, this place will be so different in four months. And how, how badly I'll wish for there to be a moment like this one. Anyone that's lived through long northeastern winters knows that if you could just, even when you take a vacation and you go somewhere and you get on the plane and you get off, off the plane in another climate, it's like magical. Like how did that happen? It, the, winter is so, it, it, the winter gets so immersed in your system that... When you can all of a sudden put on shorts and sandals and it's February, it freaks you out. And so I tried to put myself in one of those moments this morning. 
Like, I know this place will soon be winter, but it isn't right now. I know in the winter I would wish for a moment like this where I could just sit here in my short sleeve shirt outside without any, um, without any ticking clock about how quickly I'm going to have to get inside because there's only so long I can stand being out here in the cold. My face, my face starts to get cold. Um, I could take a route into my house any way I wanted. I could walk all the way around the front yard, down behind, and into the sliding glass door of my man cave. Or I can just walk across the front yard the other way, go into the garage and come into the house. I don't have to kick any slush or snow off my boots. There isn't a, an enormous process of taking things off that have become cold and wet. There's no dripping. I'm not sweating because I had to bundle up so much. The world is huge in September. The world is very small in February. And so I really felt like, you know what? This isn't doing nothing. This is a day that I want to sit and experience because I know there'll be another day where I wish I had it. And maybe the sting of, of being kind of you know, claustrophobic in the winter will be taken away somewhat because I'll have saved up kind of some of this feeling. So all those of you who live in a climate where winter is definitely going to come, take a minute when you're sitting outside and remind yourself that you are doing something special. It isn't doing nothing. Just see how many of those moments you can consciously cherish. Because I think for, for our mental health, to make it through the winter, we really have to enjoy the, the good weather as much as we can without taking it for granted. I think that's what people who live in, like, you know, California or, you know, they live in a place where, where the seasons don't change much, like Arizona. And it's great because they don't have any snow. But just I feel like the human condition is such that eventually you take everything for granted. You'll look for something else that you wish was different. We have a regular reminder of how beautiful, beautiful weather is because for about five months of the year, we don't get it. So next time you're sitting outside drinking a cup of coffee, feeling like you're doing nothing and you're bored, remember, picture yourself, picture it being wintertime. And somehow magically, you were able to go outside and sit down in your t-shirt just for 15 minutes promise that 15 minutes will feel like more than it would otherwise. That is a little piece of happiness advice. I'll be back after these messages with more. All right, Milky. It's good to be back. Okay, welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 22. Um, these next few things won't take very long, and then I'll be able to get on to larger things. Um, the first one is a happiness hint. And uh, I, I recognize that I, I've started doing this lately. I, I never used to do it. And I, I'm, I think it was one of the small contributors to my Discord. Um, and uh, it, is, it is simply this. Uh, drop things rather than carrying them over to where you have to set them down. Now, what do I mean? I mean, suppose you have your keys in your hand and you have other stuff in your hand. And... 
you need both hands for the other stuff. And the keys obviously aren't going to break if they fall. Unless you're that worried about your hardwood floors, which I'm not. I actually don't even think they're made of wood. But, um, you know, something slipping, you got like a, a shake and, and you got something else underneath your elbow in the other hand and it starts to slip and you got your keys in your hand. And you try to hustle over to the counter and put your keys down so you can free up that hand so that you can handle the other things that you're carrying. And it, it doesn't have to just be your keys. It could be anything that you know isn't going to break. I would do it with your glasses. But just try try next time that's happening to just let go of the keys. Just drop them. Don't even toss them. Don't even try to toss them to the counter because you might mess up what's in the other hand and dump the shake all over your feet. Just drop them. And then use your hands comfortably and calmly. Take your time. Walk over and put the stuff down. Then go get your keys. I could never do that before. I don't know if it was my obsessive compulsive disorder or just that I wanted to get angry about something. So I did that and that allowed me to take my anger out. Um, but if you're not the kind of person that really want, actually wants to be angry or frustrated, next time you're carrying something like your keys, um, and certainly not your phone, but I don't know anything else you could think of that isn't going to cause that big of a problem just simply by dropping a lanyard, maybe a book. Um, you could probably think of your own stuff that you carry that is droppable and not droppable. Next time you're carrying something droppable, just open your hand. The feeling of relief that you get from almost going into a, a frustrated state and possibly dropping something to the freeing, I swear you'll get a tingly feeling when you do it. You will feel like, like all of a sudden... You're, you're free to take your time walking over to the counter, and you can just pick your keys up later. I know it, it might not sound like much, but I did it this afternoon, and it felt unbelievable. So don't, I don't mean throw them down in anger either. I just mean let go. Give it a try. See if it does anything for you. All right, moving on to language things. Um, I, I have kind of a bone to pick with people who... Um, first of all, everyone knows what an alcoholic is, right? A person who was addicted to alcohol. Alcohol, and they add an I-C, alcoholic. I don't understand how people started taking this word and chopping a giant chunk out of it to, and, and somehow allowing that to stand for being addicted to. I think it's the I-C in alcoholic that suggests that you're addicted to alcohol. But but I, I've never heard of anyone being addicted to workahol or sexahol or rageahol. It, it's, it's work, sex, and rage. I don't know why they take that aholic out. Do they not realize that comes from the word alcohol? And that working, sex, and rage don't have anything to do with alcohol? Unless they mean they're addicted to work and drinking, sex and drinking, rage and drinking, which I don't think they mean. And it's just kind of become a normal thing. Something, same thing with gate. After Watergate, any big scandal's got a gate at the end of it. Somehow gate became a suffix for scandal? I don't know. Just kind of sounds stupid. I think we can do better. 
could have put my teacher hat on for that. Again, I haven't found it yet. The dog would have buried it, which might be for the best. I mean, honestly. So later on, I'm going to be talking in larger things about uh, people who are seem to be addicted to to assigning systemic causes to every problem that we have. Um, and I'm going to start calling them systemaholics. I know that they're not addicted to systemahol, but if you can't beat them, join them. So because I'll be talking for quite a while about my next topic, I'm going to take a quick break right now and drink a sip of water, and then I'll be back for the main event. I don't even need to tell you who that message is brought to you by. Um, I appreciate it. I want to get right to larger things. Um, there's a phenomenon, I guess you could call it a philo philosophical phenomenon, that I first um, came across years ago, maybe five or six years ago, when I was teaching in an unnamed city school district. <clears throat> but lately I've seen this phenomenon gain broad acceptance, not only throughout um, education systems, but throughout society as a whole. And uh, I find it to be frustrating, illogical, and frankly, difficult to talk about. Um, I've, I fear I would be attacked if I were to speak about it candidly. Um, but I, I shouldn't. And so I just want to give everyone a caveat that I intend no harm to anyone. Um, I'm, I'm a, a open to all kinds of people. Um, I'm just trying to walk in the world, honestly. And so, uh, first, let me, I'm going to tell you a few stories that kind of, uh, at points in time, jogged my memory um, about this phenomenon. And, and uh, I want to share a couple of them with you. Um, first, recently, I was at a barbecue. And it's the fall. And, you know, at the time, school is about to begin. And the students hadn't arrived at school yet. And I was sitting next to an elementary school teacher, um, a woman. Uh, I think she taught maybe third or fourth grade. or Maybe she taught uh, students who have English as a second language. Um, but she was in an elementary school. And we were talking about going back to school. And the discussion turned to COVID concerns, as it often does. And um, the protective steps schools were taking to make sure that number one they didn't get sued <laughs> and well maybe not number one number one that we protected the safety and welfare of students <laughs> and number two that that they didn't get sued we could continue to stay at school ultimately it was the goal that, that schools that were going back in person uh won <clears throat> now um specifically we were talking about um wearing masks social distancing and uh, I was reflecting on my time in this unnamed city school district that this woman happened to teach in and um, and we were talking about the the difficulty that this district is going to have enforcing the mask and social distancing rules and the reason is because they face great difficulty enforcing any rules not all, or even most, 
but a significant enough percent of the students steer the general culture in the building. And, and these students will simply never comply. They will not be in class on time. Um, they will not uh, uh, avoid using profanity. Um, they will not stop being disrespectful. They will not stop skipping class. Um, whatever the behavior is. But, but our disciplinary system has, in a way, kind of been neutered so that it does not have the power, I guess you'd say, to, to create its desired outcomes. And it got me thinking about bad behavior. And as it relates specifically to poverty, later on I'm going to talk a lot more about poverty and how it relates to bad behavior. Um, but I'll get to that in a minute. <clears throat> so anyway, this, this unnamed city school district was recently sued by the state attorney general for its suspension policies. Statistics apparently revealed that there was an inequitable distribution of suspensions, disciplinary suspensions, meaning students being sent home because their behavior was unacceptable. So there was an, an unequal distribution of suspensions toward a particular racial group. It doesn't even matter which one. This inequity was cited as evidence that our discipline policy was, and this is where I first heard this word, systemically biased in, in the need of reform. Systemically. And it, and it got me thinking of another thing that happened to me uh, maybe a few years before that when uh, my, my stepson Braden was probably about 10 or 11 years old. Um, and we were driving on our way to Easter dinner at, uh, I think, maybe the Sheraton or one of the hotels downtown by the university. And we have to go through a, a neighborhood, I guess you could call it poor neighborhood. And there were... You know, many windows that were boarded up. There were kind of broken down porches. Um, there were just debris scattered on lawns. Um, it didn't look like the neighborhood that we lived in. Not that we live in a rich neighborhood. We live in, I think, a, 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 a typical middle class <clears throat> suburban neighborhood. But we were driving down this long street uh, toward the way we would get on the highway. And, and I'll never forget this. My stepson asked me, why do they make all the poor people live in the broken houses? I said, because they stink. I meant the government ruling class, not the poor. I was, of course, joking. Where's your head at? But the fact he made the presumption that they were put there shows how juvenile I think this systemic, obsessed theorizing has become. And it was only recently, actually, that I even heard the word systemic. I'd always known the word systematic, um, of which I think I, I'm pretty sure I understand the meaning. Syste systematic, to me, means uh, uh, to consciously apply a set of choices and actions that intentionally create a predetermined result. For example, I have systematically taught students algebra when I was a resource teacher. Uh, I would take individual steps in individual moments 
to intentionally arrive at a result. I was completely aware of my system. Video recording of each instructional encounter would reflect fidelity to the system I employed. But it seems to do something systemically, from what I can gather, is to employ a system of which you are not consciously aware, by which your steps and actions result in an inequitable or punitive outcome for a particular subgroup within the population in which the alleged system is implemented. In a systematically flawed system, instances of intentional, I'm sorry, in a systemically flawed system, instances of intentional application of the system are not evident in each individual encounter. So should they be video recorded, it would not be seen intent to create this inequitable outcome would not be seen, generally speaking, in, in, in review of individual instances. But by this, by this punitive, by this theory, punitive intent, like the motivation for this punitive statistical outcome must be presumed because outcomes are found upon statistical analysis to be inequitable. As such, negative effect, negatively affecting a particular subgroup. So it is presumed that there is an intent. You might not even be aware of the intent. So you might not be aware of the system. And you might not even be aware of your intent. It, it'll be um, more of a subconscious intent that you can't even be consciously aware of while you're doing it. It could be um, a, a, an unconscious bias toward a race, a gender. It could be a social class. It could be a demographic. It could be uh, people who wear a certain color shirt. The point is you wouldn't know it, but you were doing it. And this thinking has two key presumptions. One, that the, the outcomes, statistical outcomes, mean that, one, there, there must be a problem with the system. And two, the outcome must be intentional. So for us, in my unnamed school district, it was our disciplinary procedures, policies. Which, as we understood it to be, when you witness a student exhibiting a behavior that is unacceptable. You address the behavior with the student, uh, assign a consequence to the student, document it, and then uh, uh, wait for follow through from administration, who would then offer probably a number of choices. Many times though, with this group that, that like I said before about the masks and the social distancing, they're, they're in great numbers don't comply, so in great numbers result in suspensions. So by that was the disciplinary system we followed. What we didn't realize was that we were, without knowing it, intentionally creating an inequitable outcome against a particular subgroup. And as such, even though we couldn't put our finger on it, there was something wrong with the system. We had to change it because we needed the outcome to change. We needed an equitable distribution of, of consequences, punitive consequences. So it got me thinking, and, and I, I try to put a name on it, what this thing is that 
this this way of analyzing information and determining policy and and the outcome this this um, undesired outcome that that people who espouse this philosophy um, the undesired outcome they want to eliminate is something that I've decided to call retrospective statistical discrimination RSD I'll say it again retrospective meaning looking back statistical meaning collecting and analyzing statistics and discrimination meaning um, dis uh, presuming intent in whatever behaviors resulted in this inequitable outcome it must be discrimination on whatever gender race social class height who knows oh height oh i wouldn't like that so it, 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 in a sense it goes like this you collect and analyze statistics from a recent period of time two you find unequal outcomes between selected subgroups one gender had certain results versus another one racial group had certain results versus another. Some good, some bad. Three, you conclude the resultant differences illustrate a flaw in the system. And four, the resultant outcomes are intentional and motivated by prejudice. People who find, if they find implying that they have to look for one, a systemic cause to every problem I think, speaking of what I was talking about earlier, they, they could be called systemaholics. They eliminate the significance of the individual. That's the great danger that I see. They eliminate the significance of the individual. And it, it, essentially, they undermine individual sovereignty, otherwise known as personal agency, you could call it. Um, it's, you could call it that which makes us free people, not subjects of a dictator or authoritarian. We're not wards of the state. We're free of fascism, which seems to be something everybody wants to get rid of. Everyone seems to be anti-fascist. Um, although I think some of them may not be, but that's something else. And it, as far as I can tell, based on the political climate, um, the loss of this individual sovereignty is is currently thought of as at the height of all evil, which I, I know is up there. If it's legitimate, if, if someone is legitimately robbed of their personal sovereignty and they're not free, that undermines the very purpose of our existence, as I believe, as I believe God intended. We need to be free. And... Um, and when, when these systemaholics get their hands on, on policies, they tend to result in, in uh, I guess, policies that they end up restricting personal sovereignty. I'll explain. So what I'm going to get to later is uh, about poverty. I'm going to talk specifically about how this, this systemic discrimination can be uh, applied to the poor. Um, you can apply it to race, you can apply it to socioeconomic class, whatever you want. Um, but uh, I got thinking about poverty because of the conversation I had with, with Braden in the car. And uh, so I kind of thought that all the way through. I may, I may talk later about race, but not in this particular episode. I, I guess I don't have the courage to have that conversation right now. But um, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to 
mention a little bit more here before I get right to the to big part of this. Uh, and then I'll take a quick break and then I'll get to the meat of it. But first I want to talk about this. How we frame our analysis matters. What do I mean by that? Um, in a previous episode, I talked about diversity and how it's difficult to put your hands on how you would advise an individual to contribute to diversity. I guess it's, if I, I had said, I guess it's if you're from a particular subgroup, you need to find a group that doesn't have your kind in it, one of your kind, and join it, then you contribute to the to the diversity of the group. Or I suppose if you're in charge of selecting people for a group, you have to make sure that you select one person from each kind so that you have a diverse group. Um, but what I said in particular that I find disturbing about this sort of statistical analysis is, is that like diversity, where race, gender, social, um, economic class, whatever, where it's concerned, it always seems to be discussed as it relates to a group, not as it relates to an individual. So, um, and that's where the, the rubber hits the road, because if you were ever to take a, an individual action to remedy the problem, you would not be able to remedy the problem simply by changing the words in a policy. Eventually, if you're a member of this system and you want to repair it, then you would take the words that were changed in that policy and implement it in individual encounters. And that's where I think a, um, a conflict arises because this group-based concept ends up behaving differently with the reality of the individual behavior. I don't know if I said that very well, but um, what I say will, what I say following will, will I think clarify it. When I have a question, where does responsibility lie for a group behavior? if not in the individuals who are behaving. So let's say, for example, badly. All right, we'll talk about that group of, of students in the unnamed school building who, who behave badly, persistently. And we want the behavior of the building to be better. We want the group to behave better. Um, doesn't the responsibility as we can attack it, doesn't the responsibility lie on the individuals in the group? I mean, you could say, hey, guys and girls, you who are behaving badly, we want you to behave properly. But there would be no way to implement that. The only way to implement that is dealing with the person standing in front of you, giving you the finger. It's similar to be trying to promote diversity, which is a group dynamic, not an individual dynamic. So it's difficult to know where to begin remedying a group problem because it's difficult to understand the cause at the group level, difficult to establish how to counteract it without addressing, as I said, individual behavior. And what's strange too about analyzing from a group perspective is the group may stay the same size, but the individuals in it may be different. 
So you perceive the problem to be persistent because the same number of people continue to do it. But what you might fail to realize since you're not analyzing it individually is it, it may have been a completely different group that made that same number up. Well, I'm sure it wouldn't be completely different. I'm sure you'd have your, uh, what do they call it, uh, usual suspects. Um, but but we, we, can't, we can't know which individuals are the ones making that group behavior unless we look at individuals for a solution. So, and that's, that's kind of what I'm getting back around to where it robs the individual of their sovereignty. If your treatment is affected, your individual treatment is affected by what someone desires to be a group outcome, you no longer are an individual. You are a member of that group. How you are um, addressed, how you are dealt with, may be more in an effort to create a better statistical result than it is to deal realistically with your particular behavior. You know, I used to feel like if there were, if there was, uh, once we, once you reached a threshold of 50% of a, of a whole group being punitively affected, the next individual you saw, you would be less inclined to deliver a punitive um, consequence because you would have gone over 50% and then statistics would show that you had a discriminatory practice. You see the frustration a person can have dealing with individuals, which is the way you live your life in a building, in a school building especially. Like, oh, nope, I can't deal with that person giving me the finger because it would create an inequitable distribution of of uh, disciplinary consequences, and I, I don't want to be uh, biased. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, so I will get to causes and solutions that I've heard suggested for, for bad behavior um, as it relates to poverty. Um, I was thinking like, I was thinking like another example could be like, I remember people used to say how girls didn't didn't perform well in math. The system it was there was a systemic. Although I don't think they called it that at the time. There was a systemic bias against girls, female students, um, who didn't score as well on on uh, formal tests than did boys, and it was it was concluded, I'm not exactly sure how, that that there was a bias against females somewhere in the system. And so that would be tragic if that was the case. That would need rem a remedy. But would the remedy simply be to add a certain number of points to the, to the score of each girl's test in order to make it so the test scores were similar in value? I don't feel like that would actually address it. It would make the statistics look nice. We'd clean those up. But I don't know if it actually would be helping the girls skirt the, you know, circumvent the biases that may or may not have existed in the system. So I'm going to talk about uh, 
poverty, a lot <laughs> actually, so get ready, about poverty and bad behavior and how the two are related. What's the cause? What's the effect? I will be back with that after these messages. Milky, my man. Okay. Okay, first I want to talk about poverty. What is poverty? What is it? Because uh, the the person that I was talking about uh, where I was sitting at the barbecue, um, I remember her specifically saying, as I was describing the problem with these bad behaviors the students were having and the difficulty they would have getting them to um, adhere to the social distancing and mask rules and you know, preventative procedures, um, I remember as I was saying how frustrating it must be because I know to deal with those bad behaviors. She said, um, yeah, but you know, um, you know, these kids are dealing with all kinds of systemic biases, systemic prejudices, you know, systemic poverty. I think she said specifically. And I got thinking a lot about for a while, like about a week. I was thinking about the relationship between poverty and bad behavior and this idea of whether or not it is systemic. I mean, thinking about what system, you know, in my mind, I wanted to say, I could kind of tell what her political leanings were, so I, I didn't really want to, you know, talk politics at a party. Um, I thought we were just talking shop because we were talking about school, but I guess politics is in everything. And on a sidebar, I've been fighting the urge to talk about politics on this show because I know I'll probably alienate half the people. But I might triple my audience uh, on the other side. So I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm leaving the option open. Um, but for now, there are still so many things that are not directly related to politics that I want to uh, expound upon. And so I was thinking about this relationship between, as I said, poverty and bad behavior. Now, I guess the most important thing first to start with is to define what it is we're talking about. Because if we're having a conversation about something and you think it's one thing and I think it's something else, we, we don't have any common ground. So I thought a lot about what poverty is. How is poverty measured? So we know that it exists. And now, impoverished, as I always understood it, and, and bear with me, I'm old. Uh, impoverished as I always understood it meant going without necessary essentials not having the money to provide yourself and your family necessary essentials and the, the big three were always food, water and shelter you could add clothing and I happen to know because of my own experience um dealing with people, working with people, being in friendships with people who were technically impoverished. I know that because I know they didn't have any money. Um, I know that we now have a very generous and often very necessary government assistance program. So now when you look at poverty statistically, it tends to mean those without an income. That's what places them below the poverty level. And so just to, just to recap quickly, if, if you're not aware of it, most people probably are. And I was also aware of this during my long time teaching in this unnamed city school district. 
uh, from the from the uh, experiences of my own students and families. That uh, due to public assistance, the following items are currently provided for those in need of them due to their income. One is public assistance itself. That's an amount of money. I think they use a card, a debit card or something. Um, and that is essentially free money. Now, I'm not making a judgment about whether or not this stuff should be or shouldn't be. I'm just saying what is. Public assistance is one thing. That's basically cash on a card. It can be spent on anything. Then there is an EBT card. Um, I used to know what EBT meant, but I've forgotten. Um, but uh, that is for food. It's basically what what used to be called food stamps. It's now a food card, a debit card. And there are restrictions, I think, on what you can buy with that. Like, I don't think you can buy prepared foods, um, like boxed macaroni and cheese. I don't think you can buy soda, or maybe you can't. I think the restrictions have even loosened um, on that. But I know there are still some restrictions. I think maybe you can't buy candy or fireworks. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I, I don't think you can. You would, you would use your PA card to buy your fireworks. Um, there is Section 8 housing, which is essentially free housing, where the the uh, landlords are paid or the banks are paid by um, a third party, the government. And so shelter is provided. So now you have some cash, you have food, and you have shelter. And these, th these amounts of money are resupplied, <clears throat> I believe, monthly based on the level of busyness at the grocery store. I think it's probably the first of the month or the last of the month. Um, I, want to, I don't want to get myself in trouble here. So remember, I'm just trying to do my best to be honest. Um, and then there's there's something called HEAP. Again, that's a, a abbreviation. I'm not sure what it stands for, but I know that it provides power and heat. So you have your shelter, you have your power and your heat. You have something for your refrigerator and your kitchen table. And you have an amount of cash, I guess, for clothes. Um, you know, just things that you might want to do in your life. Go to the movies. And then, of course, there's always, and this will come into play later, there's, there's of course, free public education. We all get that. But still, it, it needs to be counted as something people get when they don't have the ability to pay for it. Now, people who own property pay property taxes to the school, school taxes. And so they, taxpayers, do essentially pay for public education. But those who do not pay in are also afforded public education. That's what I meant to say. But since none of this is counted as income, all of these people are statistically considered to be poor in poverty. So in today's incarnation, poverty is certainly unfortunate. It's not a level of existence that is fantastic. I mean, and I'm sure it's, you know, it's, it would be preferable to have more than what is supplied. But it isn't tragic. It isn't tragic like Diego kneeling in the mud trying to drink water from a polluted stream eating bugs. I have no idea where, if he's still alive. Um, but that's poverty. 
at least it's what used to be called poverty. So one could argue that despite the system, whatever the system is that creates poverty, the systemically flawed system in our society that causes it, that this, to which this woman was referring, the systemic challenges, it, it, it's, you could argue that despite the system, that there is poverty, not because of it, despite the system, not because of it. Right? Even though the system is there to provide for people, um, some people remain poor. Or to go one step further, you could say that it even, and I, I don't know how many of you go along with, with me here, I'm not even certain I believe this, but you could posit that that if it's because of the system that there is poverty, then it is because the system is preferable to working. Right? A less uncomfortable way of life than it is to live in poverty in its current form. Right? Poverty must be preferable to working for some people. The amount of work they would have to do would not equal the additional benefit they would get from the assistance that they're getting from the government. And that's their choice. And I guess that's where, in my mind, it comes in like, you know, yes, you would like to have uh, a new phone or a new game system. Oh, that's the other thing. Phones are provided. I think they call them Obama phones. So you, you are connected in terms of communication. You know, go without what I think is a necessity. I mean, I think having a phone is more a necessity than having candy. But say you wanted an iPhone or a smartphone of some kind, an expensive phone. Or anything else like that, a big screen TV, um, a vacation. Um, those things will not be provided for you by the government. Unless you choose to spend your cash card on those things. But then you would go without other essentials. Which some people do. But the point is, in order to get those other things, it would require an amount of work that I think many, I know, I know from personal experience, that many prefer not to do. It isn't to them worth it. And that's their own calculation. It's a cost-benefit analysis. To do more work so I can have the vacation, the new smartphone, and the big screen TV. Or not do the work and live in this contented enough existence called poverty. Okay, that is what poverty is as best I can grapple with it. And I will take a quick break and I'll be back and I'll talk about what people are consider the cause. What is the cause of poverty? And this is where it is open for debate. Uh, I don't know if there's any proof of any of these causes, but within our determination of the cause lies our determination of the solution. And um, that's where... Uh, you know, as the bard says, lies the rub. So I'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, everybody. That message was brought to you by Mr. Goatman. Uh, Milky is on a lunch break. Okay, um, I was going to get right to the cause, but first, upon reflection, let me talk a little bit about what bad behavior is. Right? I'm talking about the relationship between crime and bad behavior. I mean, uh, Poverty and bad behavior. 
Uh, crime is included in bad behavior. So let me start by just what what is bad behavior if you have to come up with an umbrella definition of it. <clears throat> bad behavior, um, illegal and legal bad behavior, it, I guess you could capture by saying it is the breaking of or ignoring of the social contract. In other words, we're, we all agree that we're going to have to live together. I don't want certain things to happen to me or be done to me. And I must recognize through reciprocity that I ought not do them to other people. That's so why hypocrisy is such considered such a great sin because it is the breaking of the golden rule, rule above everything else. Don't do something to someone that you don't want done to you. Essentially, that's the foundation of the social contract. And it's, it seems like a very good starting place for a society. So... Let's say break, uh, bad behavior is anything that does that, either breaks or ignores the social contract. So I'll start with the, the ch child or adolescent behavior, bad behavior, that I've personally witnessed. And I worked for many years to actually try and help, try and help correct, change the path, uh, modify that behavior. Um, and so I'll just run through a quick list of <clears throat> things that I've witnessed at school, in the community, um, just kind of out in the world when I'm out there walking. Um, at school, uh, there's a, I've noticed a high degree of absenteeism. Um, absenteeism is a, a significant problem in uh, inner city schools. Um, they just students just don't show up. They oversleep. They sleep in. Um, they or they get up early and go somewhere else. But they don't go to school. And, and when they're in school, many times, they don't go to their classes. They play this game where they just run around the building, hiding in places, um, I guess, willing to accept whatever the consequence is should they get caught because they do it again and again. And the consequence, whatever it, it is in our disciplinary structure, does not change that behavior. Um, and it's a funny, it's a phenomenon. There are some students who are there, literally there every day. And never in a class. And um, like, as I mentioned before, the problem we ran into with suspending students, um, we got ourselves in trouble. So we, there's kind of a, a I don't want to say a lockdown, but a strong discouragement of suspending. Um, that comes from the top of the district down to administrators. And actually, it goes all the way up to the state, state level, state education, and uh, maybe even the federal level, depending on the, the, the politics in place at the time. So absenteeism. Um, I noticed this one. This is a very small one, but it ends up creating a climate in a building. And that is littering. Uh, some, I've, I've witnessed it again and again, every day, at least once. Someone will be walking along, eating a snack, maybe Twinkies or a, a bag of Fritos, maybe a can of soda. And they'll be, as they're walking along and they finish it, or half finish it or whatever, they will just drop it without even breaking stride, walking next to someone, talking to them, and just dropping it on the floor. Half full cartons of chocolate milk, pint, little pints. And so you end up with this cacophony of smells as you walk down the hall. You can smell like salad dressing because there'll be a, a, a just a styrofoam plate of half-eaten salad with the salad dressing there maybe some ketchup smeared on it and some of it on the floor 
and it's it, it and after the lunches, the three blocks of lunch, it probably takes the rest of the day for the custodians to clean it up. But you step in it, you smell it, you have to walk around it. Um, and, and they do it, obviously, without any sense of concern that, A, they're making a mess, or B, that they're living in a mess. And again, like I said, all of this is with the caveat that I don't mean all, I don't mean most. I mean enough to create a climate. Um, and then the biggest one, I think, that occurs is treating others with disrespect. This is probably the most frequently broken aspect of the golden rule. Uh, they'll talk to people in ways they don't want to be spoken to. They'll take things from people they don't want to take they don't they don't want to take it from themselves. Um, small things like food or you know they'll snatch each other's cell phones and not give them back or, um, and uh, I forgot bullying. I should put bullying on this list, but but I think it falls into this category. This, the, and I don't just mean students treating students with disrespect. I mean students openly swearing and cussing out teachers with the most vile language. I bet worse than you'd see on a I don't know what a World War Two Navy ship. Um. I guess that's an assumption. I'm presuming that they had bad mouths, but they say swear, swearing like a sailor. So anyway, swearing like a, a, a large number of inner city students is very similar. Um, general rule breaking. Like I said, not going to class. Um, just <clears throat> um, not being where they're supposed to be in the building. Going to the wrong lunches on purpose because there's someone there they want to hang out with or they want to avoid that class. Um, leaving school when they're not supposed to leave. <clears throat> um, and then just cheating, copying homework. If, they, if they're doing the homework, I mean, in many cases they're not. I know this sounds bad, but I'm telling you I'm painting an accurate picture. In the 25 years. Um, destroying property and vandalism. You have to lock every door. Students will try every door because there might be something in that room that they can either eat, sell, or destroy. Um, and then there's the larger, the larger kind of uh, bad behavior like gang violence. Um, and many students in high school, I mean, much smaller than the group of people who tend to just have bad behavior, a much, much smaller sample group. But there exists at least... A number, a handful of students who are involved in gangs, gang-related violence, drug dealing, um, and that tends to lead to a lot of other violence. Uh, and and it tends to kind of commingle with a lot of these <clears throat> the other things on this list. Like obviously, they're if they're out on the corner selling drugs, then they're not in school. Um, and so they're obviously rule breaking if they're law breaking. <clears throat> but those are those are the bad behaviors I think of when I think of uh, children and adolescents across the spectrum. I'm not singling any group of people out. And then um, moving to adult bad behavior, there's there's white collar crime, which happens a lot more than you hear about. And I mean like people in business suits, that kind of like fraud, embezzlement, um, theft of money in in ways that people who are managing money um, maybe 
illegal importing, um, things like that, not paying taxes. So that's definitely a, a large component of adult crime. And but <clears throat> I think just as just as significant and maybe the most significant is violent crime. And like if you think of a large city like Chicago, I mean, just the murder rate alone. I mean, dozens of people murdered in a weekend. And then, you know, you, you hear about rape. Rape and murder sometimes go together. Sometimes people just rape people. Talk about breaking the social contract. And then lots and lots of sm smaller things like burglary and theft that tend to lead to violence. Uh, either people wanting revenge or um, burglaries being interrupted and people being um, killed with knives or guns. Um, and we all, we all know about that kind of, of uh, bad behavior. But it is it tends to be more rampant in um, in larger cities, and then there's other kinds that you don't really see, but we know are going on because we see the results, like domestic abuse, people beating up their spouses or girlfriends or boyfriends. It happens a lot. That's kind of more of a well, actually, I think it crosses the spectrum, but I don't want to I don't want to deride any one group specifically, but I've seen a lot of uh, videos of really skinny white guys get beaten up by their much stronger wives. I bet it happens in every group, but for some reason, those are the most popular ones to put on YouTube. Um, of course, child neglect. I see this all the time. This is the bad behavior of the parent manifest in the child. They obviously haven't eaten in a while. They're sick, but no one is taking them to the doctor. Um, their hygiene is terrible. You know, their nails are really long and dirty. It looks like their hair hasn't been washed. Maybe they have bruises. And then the last one I want to talk about quick is drug abuse. <clears throat> now, I put an asterisk next to drug abuse because I know many good people who have been drug addicts, who are drug addicts technically. I don't think you become not one once you are. And, um, and drug abuse is one of those crimes where you, you hurt yourself. You definitely hurt other people that you that depend on you if you're a parent or if you're a spouse or even as a son or or daughter or brother or sister. You hurt everyone around you, even though you people try to pretend like they just hurt themselves. Um, but drug abuse is definitely a bad behavior. Whether or not it directly hurts other people, um, it creates a, an aspect of citizenry that is unreliable um, sometimes dangerous. And there are ways that um, drug abusers certainly break the social contract. But, and, I mean, I'm sure I left something out, but that pretty much is a, a, a pretty good, I think, inventory of bad behaviors that occur in the society as we know it today. Now, the question is, what is the cause? As I was talking to this woman at the, at the barbecue I was telling you about, her blanket statement seemed to be poverty. You know, they're dealing with poverty, living in poverty. And the weight of that poverty, in, the, in her mind, causes a great deal of dysfunction in their lives. And uh, she, she went further on to say that it was systemic. 
So something about the systems in our society are creating this poverty. That poverty is the cause of their behavior. And we need to do something about this system so that we can eliminate that poverty, which will then in turn, according to this theory, eliminate their behavior. Now, right off the bat, I think you can see the problem that I have with this is that it takes the agency away from the individual. If that person isn't smashing that window to break into that car so they can drive it to go to a drug dealer because they're doing it, then it ends up having to be, the, the blame for it ends up having to be kind of spread into the ether of a society. We all bear responsibility for that person. So in a sense, they almost didn't even decide to smash the window and take the car. It wasn't really even a conscious choice. They, they don't have that kind of free will. Their, their decisions are the result of the state they're in, the conditions under which they live. And if one of those conditions is poverty, well, then poverty is the reason. If we've established this capitalist democratic system and it allows for poverty, then it is our fault. Just as much as it is that person's. And some would say even more. But the problem I have with it and all of this systemic thinking is that it robs the individual of their agency. They're, they're no longer considered a free actor making decisions. And that bothers me. Because it not only do I believe it's just wrong on its face... It also makes for a nearly impossible task of solving the problem. So this is what I've heard as the cause. I'll go into more detail. This is what I've heard as the theory for how poverty causes um, bad behavior. So as I've said, I've heard that uh, I've heard the opinion that all these things, these, these these bad actions, can be attributed to poverty for ignorant behavior in general. Is that an explanation, if not a justification for it? You know, she, I think literally this person said, you can't blame the kids or the parents. The problem they have is systemic. In other words, it's the system's fault. As members of the system, although I've never been issued a registration card for a member of the system that causes this, I am, we are, society is the cause of this behavior. I always wonder then, should the system get the true credit for what individuals have always done successfully? Like, am I not allowed to claim the credit for my own accolades? Whatever successes or achievements I've had, do I have agency in those? Or, or are those also into the ether and attributed to our society as a whole? And it, it just it, it calls to mind how the deeper you go into this method of thinking, the more all of the onus, energy, impetus, it, it, it floats from the person, individual, which is me. I am one. The person I meet on the street is one or in the classroom is one. It floats from that individual out to the system, to us all. And then sometimes to try and find an answer for it, it can start to feel like you're chasing a ghost. So when we search for systemic remedies, we presume, 
by nature, the cause that, that the cause of the problem is the system, rather than that the problem simply existing within the system. That the problem is caused by it, not just simply existent in it. And so we must beware that changing a system to eliminate a detrimental element of it, like this problem that exists in the system, if we change the system in order to eliminate this element, we may, and often do, by unintended consequences, eliminate an element that is beneficial. Like in this case, I'm positing that we're eliminating freedom. I get to escape from personal accountability, but I lose my freedom. My, as I said, my agency. And I wonder if that, you know, may be more better than the other is worse. So, for the sake of discussion, I love things that are for the sake of discussion. Let's talk specifically. So, the question is, should the problem be addressed from the individual level up or from the group level down? Right? Should it be attacked from the perspective of the individual or the group? And I guess, for me, it, it's really hard to even begin attacking the problem unless you can examine its manifestations in specific cases, in individual occurrences, encounters, as opposed, and in, in this case of these systemic flaws in this, that we have, in, in this case, it's, it's difficult to trace it to individual encounters. Because as I said, I've been in hundreds, if not thousands of them. And I, I can't think of a single case where I didn't, maybe a few, where I was in a bad mood or having a bad day. But in in 99% of the cases, when I was addressing behavior, I was aware of what the rule that we all agreed to was. I was aware of the specific behavior occurring. And then I took the action that was prescribed by our discipline policy that we all agreed on. Parents agreed on, students agreed on. And um, and that, that encounter went into the giant list of, of, you know, numbers that became the averages that we turned out to be systemically biased. But in the moment, there didn't appear to be any bias. As opposed to, like it was in the day, a systematic legal discrimination. In other words, actually worked into the system were, were obstacles and, and punitive consequences for people who did not deserve them. For example, if it was 1955 and you were going to apply for a job and you had done everything right, you were qualified for the job, you dressed the way you should, you were ready to go, you went to the job and you saw a sign that said white applicants only. That would be a very specific instance where the system and the individual can be traced to a meeting point. Right? I'm tempted to try that with like a modern day panhandler, which I've talked about in previous episodes, but just to see where exactly his life, in his life, the system prevents him from accessing increased wealth. Is there a sign that says you cannot work here? Rather than standing on the corner and panhandling? And like I said, panhandling is work, but if you're willing to do work, what is the reason why you're not going to do work that doesn't require humiliation? And, and when we talk about this 
unequal distribution of wealth as it relates to poverty, I think it's fair to say, I can't think of any, that no system in history, economic system, um, governmental system, has ever guaranteed and fulfilled the promise of equal wealth accumulation. I don't want to say wealth distribution because the government may print money, but it doesn't make any. So it's not the government giving us money. It's us earning money from an economy. And only work does that. Whether you see it or not, only work gets things done. And, and therefore accumulates wealth. I know from personal experience that, that poverty is the effect of these attitudes, not the cause. That is my position. I'm stating very clearly. My personal experiences, my claim is that poverty is the effect of these attitudes and behaviors, not the cause. In other words, you're not poor, and then you decide to act a fool, skip school, break the law. Be ignorant. I think you show apathy towards school act ignorant, break the law, and the result is a life in poverty. As we define it now, which I talked about before, is is not that, not that terrible in existence, at least in our current society. So then we have to get to what is the solution? I believe that, that ignorance is the cause, and bad behavior is the cause, and poverty is the result. This person I was discussing this with, believes the opposite. Poverty is the cause and the bad behavior is the result. So let me, I would just spell out a few things that I've seen myself in action lift a person who's willing to do their part from literally zero money, in fact, debt, debt. Lift them from that situation to a position where they had accumulated a significant amount of wealth, at least significant enough for their life working to be better than their life on public assistance. And here are what I think are the pillars that support, and there I'm sure there are many more, but just obvious ones that I've noticed that I think have a mediating effect on, on poverty and a person's place in the spectrum of poverty. The first one is the biggest one. And I think it's most important because it is the greatest and truest building block, I believe, of any society. And that is, if you haven't guessed it, the family. It is the most essential building block of a free society. Like they say, blood is thicker than water. It is in my family. It's also thicker than friendship and any of the uh, various government liquids that they might be offering. And, and I think of students that I tried to help at school who were suffering conditions. And some of those conditions were too much freedom, like no rules. Sometimes no, no parent around at all. So complete and unadulterated freedom at 12 years old, 14, 16. And so you notice very basic things right away. That, that you could argue lead from the behavior to poverty. One is uh, 
a parent needs to make sure that their child is fed. Although when they get to school, they're fed more. So the government's even even doing its job feeding them at school. They get breakfast and lunch. So the parent really doesn't even need to feed them breakfast or lunch, but give them something to eat, usually. Um, make sure that they get sleep. In, in many of these families, these poor families, children are up to all hours of the night of the night on, on devices, either on their phone or their computer, on social media, or on some kind of game system playing video games. I'm talking about into the wee hours. I know it for a fact. One in the morning, two in the morning. Sometimes they just don't come to school because they got to sleep after that, or, or they'll come to school completely tired and sleep through their classes. You got to get sleep. And it, it, it's just so ironic to me that in houses where poverty exists, people are playing video games for too expensive video games on expensive devices for too long that they aren't able to take advantage of the free public education that's being offered. And then the other is a work ethic. If a work ethic is not instilled in a child through modeling, through explanation of its value, then a child is always going to feel like the amount of work it takes to do something is more than the thing is worth. I have to do that? Forget it. Right? A work ethic, by definition, is the discipline to follow something that you believe to be morally good. Or just good, desirable. You want to have stuff. It takes money to get stuff. You have to do work to get money. You must have a work ethic in order to get those desirable things. Unless you're willing to settle for the less than desirable amount of things that you're given by a generous society, which I believe we are. Um, so parents can model that. They can model a work ethic of their own. They can instill in children the idea that nothing is really free, even if you yourself don't pay for it. Work had to be done to make it or to provide it as a service. The second after family, and I, they, might be, they might be tied, but I had to put family first, is education. I believe education. Once you have the foundation of family, or even if you don't and you happen to be born lucky enough to have the Constitution to do it, education is the key, the key to escaping poverty. But how can you gain skills and knowledge when you're either absent or behaving disruptively or apathetically? And to that bounces back to the family. But with education, you can develop a particular skill. You can learn how to become a cosmetologist. And you can apply for a job as a cosmetologist. And you can work as a cosmetologist. There we go. Um, or you could be a carpenter's assistant or a nurse or a nurse's assistant. And I'm talking about students who struggle with school. Um, many of them are not college bound because they've been set back so far to begin with and aren't moving along as quickly. Some would say because of bad behavior. Some would say because of poverty. Um, but, but if you're not accessing your free education, it's almost like, and, and you didn't see your parents or their parents, then naturally what's going to become the norm for your existence is the current state of poverty. 
in, in, in a way that I swear I'm going to get yelled at for saying this, but in a way it is by choice. Remember Diego, the real poverty. He doesn't have a choice. The man is asking me to send him the cost of a cup of coffee per day so that he can have fresh water. That's poverty. Um, and then the third thing is prudent government action. I want to say government action because I'm not, after all I've said, I'm not against public assistance. I'm not against, in a, in a nation this wealthy where we have billionaires, millionaires, upper middle class, middle class, lower middle class. There's enough wealth that some, I believe, should be spread to those who either, and I'm not talking about people with disabilities. They deserve everything they get in disability income, disability benefits, whatever that is. But I'm talking about the able-bodied, undisabled people who still, for whatever reason, aren't able to or aren't willing to work to support their own living. Think about it, literally, to support their own living. But I agree with some people who say in a country this wealthy, some wealth distribution is required. And, and, and just philanthropically, um, altruistically. I don't want any Diego's in our country, even if it's their own choice to not work. I think they should have, and I might get in trouble from other people for saying this, I think they should have a phone. I think they should have a television and cable and internet, even if they don't have the, the willingness to do the work that requires paying for it. I don't mind some of that coming out of my check. Excuse me, out of my check. Um, I'm not heartless. But at the same time, I think that for the sake of our society, functional society, to be able to be its best, at least strive for its best, working ought to be um, ought to be able to provide a greater life than not working. So if we made the, the lives of the non-working poor exactly the same as the average life, there would be no incentive for them to work. And, and you would find that all those things that you think just happen or that you just get, you would realize that they are in fact caused by work, even if you don't see it. And those things would start disappearing. And the average that you say these people deserve would start to fall. The average living would start to fall. And that's where Ronald Reagan said the a rising tide lifts all boats. Well, you know, a leaky tub lowers all rubber duckies. And with that, I believe I've said about as much as you are willing to hear on that subject. Thank you for letting me get that out. Now you know my feelings about systemic theory and uh, the relationship between poverty and bad behavior. As always, thank you for listening. Um, I think this podcast, from at least for the near future, will be weekly um, because I'm back at school. And I kind of like it. It lets me save up my ideas and get rid of the bad ones most in most cases. So, as always, thank you for listening. I hope to see you again next week. Thank you.